everybody. This is Dan Walker. Welcome to another edition of U.S. Law Radio. One of the things we can count on in life is that with every new year comes a bevy of changes in the law. For many of us, the changes don't really make a big difference. But if you're an employer or you represent employers, the winds of change are blowing for 2011. John Seacrest is with the firm Retzel and Andrus in Columbus, Ohio. He's been studying and practicing employment law for a long time. And he joins us now to spotlight the top 10 employment issues for 2011. John, welcome into U.S. Law Radio. Thank you very much, Dan. appreciate the introduction. So, John, a lot of change in 2011? We have a lot of change that's going to be born out of case law and decisions issued by the United States Supreme Court. We anticipated originally quite a bit of change coming by way of federal statutes. There were several important statutes that technically are still pending or at least movement by the federal government related to expanding FMLA coverage, uh, expanding protection to certain classes such as sexual orientation, paid sick leave, and the Paycheck Fairness Act, which was actually just voted down. A lot of those measures by the federal government are going to be put on hold or simply voted down now with our new Congress. So from a change standpoint, it mostly will come from case law now. We had anticipated quite a bit of legislation, but really do not see that happening now, given the midterm elections. Okay, then. Well, we have 10 employment issues for 2011 to motor through. Let's work backwards, starting with issue number 10. Issue number 10 is one that's pretty familiar to employers, and that's retaliation. In 2009, the EEOC had a record high number of charges of discrimination that alleged retaliation. Based on prospective numbers from 2010 already, it looks like the EEOC is going to top its 2009 numbers. This really isn't a new issue in and of itself for employers. What will be potentially new is the United States Supreme Court is considering a couple cases that will potentially expand retaliation coverage. The first is Thompson versus North American Stainless. And in that case, essentially, an employee reported potential discrimination. No problem there. She was not retaliated against, but her fiancé was then terminated. So he brought a claim of retaliation. And essentially what the Supreme Court is going to decide is just who is and who is not protected from retaliation. Typically, Title VII only protects individuals who make a complaint or make a charge of discrimination or engage in protected activity. It doesn't extend to individuals who are not actively opposing an action. But the Thompson case might expand that, and the question really is how far will that expansion go? Who is going to be covered? In the Thompson case, it's a fiancé. Well, would it cover a husband, a wife, a sister, a brother? We really don't know. So that's one certainly to keep an eye on. The Supreme Court is also considering whether or not to expand retaliation protections under the Fair Labor Standards Act. The case law that sits right now typically only protects an individual who makes a written complaint pursuant to the Fair Labor Standards Act. And in the case of Gaston versus St. Gobin, however, the particular plaintiff made a verbal complaint and was then terminated. And the Supreme Court's going to consider whether or not a verbal complaint is enough to trigger the protection mechanisms under the anti-retaliation provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And the problem for employers is if you look at some of the recent Supreme Court decisions related to retaliation under Title VII, 
the Supreme Court has not really looked at the text of the statute to provide protection to employees. Rather, the Supreme Court has looked at the intent of the statutes to protect employees and say, we're going to broadly apply these statutes. So it'll be very interesting to see how those two cases turn out until they do. And if they do, it's particularly important for employers to ensure that their supervisors and decision makers are properly trained and to pay attention to all complaints, whether written or verbal. Retaliation, issue number 10. All right, John, what's issue number nine? Issue number nine really revolves around the ADA. Most employers are aware that the amendments to the ADA went into effect in January of 2009. In 2009, the EEOC saw about a 10% increase and is really focusing on return-to-work policies. And what that means is a lot of employers have a blanket return-to-work policy that, let's say, an employee has exhausted FMLA leave, they require that employee to return to work within 30 days of exhausting FMLA. Those blanket policies have really been the subject of EEOC enforcement actions because the EEOC has determined those blanket policies discriminate against individuals who have disabilities. So it's very important for employers to consider each case on a case-by-case basis and determine whether or not the particular employee could have a disability. And if so, the employer needs to engage in the interactive process with that employee. Duly noted. Okay, how about issue number eight? Regulations to GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, just issued this past month. GINA took effect November 21st of 2009. It's still a very new law, and the new regulations are really going to dictate where that law goes related to what genetic information employers can obtain and what they can disclose. For now, the most important thing for employers to take away is that the EEOC has recommended warning language to be issued to healthcare providers when an employer is requesting medical information. It's imperative that employers include that warning language in any any request for medical information and to update their policies to state that they prohibit discrimination related to genetic information. Genetics. The top 10 employment issues of 2011, we're counting them down. Issue number seven. Issue number seven is generally discrimination under Title VII and obviously not a new issue. However, the Supreme Court of the United States is considering right now what's called the cat's paw theory. Essentially, the cat's paw theory would hold employers liable for adverse employment actions when the actual decision maker has no discriminatory animus or bias. Essentially, the decision maker is fed information from an underling who does have a discriminatory animus or bias, and the decision maker then acts on that information. Very problematic for employers because you have a neutral decision maker determining what action to impose on an employee and that decision maker completely neutral, unbiased, not motivated by any discriminatory intent, yet potentially the employer can still be held liable. Uh, The Supreme Court is considering that right now, but the important thing to take away for employers is make sure that your decision makers have adequate basis for any adverse employment action. And also under the discrimination banner. The EEOC is really focusing on employment tests right now 
And the Supreme Court's decision earlier this year in Lewisburg City of Chicago extends the statute of limitations related to employment tests to the latest use of that test. So employers make sure that you are periodically reevaluating any employment test to ensure they are actually testing job-related duties and that they don't adversely impact one protected class over another. Great advice. How about number six? Uh, number six is generally the use of mobile devices. Technology is constantly evolving and, and the law as well. Mobile devices present several problems. One is under the Fair Labor Standards Act, it's difficult for employers to keep track of hours worked. There's been a couple class action lawsuits brought by employees who have alleged that they've performed work off the clock by answering telephone calls or responding to emails. You can combat that fairly easily by only issuing mobile devices to exempt employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. One of the other significant issues is vicarious liability of employers for employees who text while driving or use their cell phones while driving. Again, fairly easy to combat by instituting policies that prohibit such behavior. might not get you out of a lawsuit initially, but might prevent any liability from any damages or injury relating to the use of a mobile device while driving. Okay, good to know. John feels like we're halfway through. How about employment issue number five? Number five, social networking. Again, following the technology topic, Social networking provides a host of issues for employers. There's privacy issues. There's discovery issues once a lawsuit has actually been instituted. There's non-compete issues once an employee leaves. And there's also issues related to discrimination and harassment. Just recently had a client who received word from a fellow employee that another employee had posted on her Facebook page that she felt she was harassed and discriminated against by her supervisor. It's very important for employers to actually have social networking or social media policy. It's also important to amend any non-compete agreements to include language related to social media. Attempts by former employees to use LinkedIn to contact customers, you have to include that in your non-compete that such behavior is considered solicitation and barred by the non-compete. The National Labor Relations Board, however, just issued a complaint related to an overly broad social media policy. So it used to be we would draft our social media policies very broadly in order to provide as much protection to the employer as technology evolves. However, it's now imperative to draft those policies so that they are not too broad and only protect the legitimate business interests of the employer. Social networking, that one was only a matter of time. Okay, John, what's number four? Number four is generally employee misclassification. The federal government and here in Ohio, Ohio's attorney general have instituted attempts to really sanction and prevent employers from misclassifying employees as independent contractors. The federal government has hired 90 investigators this past year solely to deal with this issue. Ohio has a joint 1099 task force the real problem for employers is if one of your employees that you've labeled as an independent contractor is really an employee, you potentially be liable for not only back pay, but back taxes, back contributions to workers' comp, to unemployment compensation. There's really a penalty of damages and sanctions that can be imposed. 
So it's very important for employers to perform a self-audit of their workforce, determine whether or not your independent contractors could be classified as employees, and if so, revisit that issue and how you want to treat them. We're down to the top three employment issues, John. What's number three? Number three is Fair Labor Standards Act claims. It's no secret that there's been a dramatic increase in private lawsuits and enforcement actions in the past couple of years related to overtime issues. Department of Labor has hired approximately 220 investigators in the past 18 months, and it seems there's always a headline related to a class action lawsuit for overtime damages. As an employer, the new hire of investigators by the Department of Labor really increases your likelihood of being the target of an investigation. In the past, the Department of Labor would typically schedule investigations. Now they are using their unannounced visits more so. So it's very important for employers to actually have a plan in place if the Department of Labor does knock on your door. Appoint a point person to deal with the Department of Labor, be the voice of the company, and make sure that that individual is trained to only give out information related to the actual investigation so as not to incur fines and sanctions for conduct that is not actually being investigated. It's also important to amend policies and procedures to include statements to the effect that employees are required to report any overtime. The Sixth Circuit, which oversees the federal courts in Ohio, Tennessee, Michigan, and Kentucky, has said that employees cannot unreasonably fail to report overtime when the employer has a policy requiring overtime be reported. And also make sure that any policies and procedures and handbooks state that if you are paying a salary, that salary is in exchange for all hours worked. Ohio's federal courts follow the fluctuating work week doctrine, which can limit damages if you are actually the subject of an overtime claim. Boy, you're giving us a lot to worry about, John. What's hot issue number two? Hot issue number two is, is sort of what we discussed at the outset, the fact that we are not going to see a lot of federal legislation that's going to impact the way employers do business. Uh, here in Ohio, as I mentioned before, the Attorney General was really the driving force behind Ohio's misclassification initiative that really targeted a lot of small and medium-sized employers. Ohio has a new Attorney General. Ohio has a new Congress. Federal government has a new Congress, not as liberal as before. So we do not expect a whole lot in the way of federal legislation. Do anticipate that federal agencies such as the Department of Labor will continue their enforcement actions. However, at the state level, at least here in Ohio, I think that will be significantly curtailed with the new administration. But you still see 2011 as being a busy year for you and your colleagues, don't you? I, I certainly do. Employment law is dynamic. It's not static. It's always changing. And despite the turnover and some of the uh, top officials here in Ohio, uh, I don't see the agencies really getting off their mission of recovering money for the state of Ohio, and they do that through enforcement actions. I think what you'll see is less targeted enforcement actions against small to medium-sized employers and more against the larger employers. All right. Well, John, we're finally in the home stretch. What is the number one employment issue for 2011? The Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act went into effect this summer. Uh, the SEC just issued regulations related to the Dodd-Frank Act. Essentially, the act provides uh, whistleblower provisions that covers banks, loan brokers, check cashing, companies, etc. 
and it prohibits retaliation against any employee who has provided information to the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, any local agency, any state agency, any federal agency such as the SEC. The anti-retaliation provisions can really hurt employers from a monetary standpoint because they allow employees to recover double back pay and attorney fees. Even more problematic is there's a six-year statute of limitations on these claims. So it's really imperative for employers to increase the duration of their record retention policies. There's already been quite a few plaintiff's firms advertising on the Internet and on TV for whistleblower plaintiffs pursuant to the Dodd-Frank Reform Act. And the problem with it is it also encourages employees to report any financial fraud to the SEC rather than internally. It actually provides employees an incentive. There's a bounty program that provides employees 10 to 30% of any monetary sanctions over a million dollars from successful SEC enforcement actions. So all the attempts that we've made as employers and as employers' counsel to encourage in-house and internal reporting, essentially this act encourages the opposite. So it's very important for employers to be vigilant and respond to any complaints. If, if you respond to a complaint from an employee, there's less likelihood they're going to go outside. You can also play around and try to offer incentives to employees who internally report so as to encourage that internal reporting mechanism rather than these employees going to the SEC first. Because if they go to the SEC first, the employer is not going to have any benefit of the self-reporting protections under the act and the leniency that's afforded to self-reporting. Well, I'll tell you, John, you certainly kept your finger on the pulse of the important employment issues. Where do we go if we want to pursue more knowledge on the subject? Uh, For employers, it's always good to visit the Department of Labor's website. You can even subscribe to their RSS feeds. They will issue updates on a weekly basis as far as enforcement. They're taking any issues that they're considering as well as the Supreme Court issues notices once an opinion has been issued related to employment law. And, of course, uh, our firm, Russell & Andrus, issues a quarterly newsletter as well as has an employment blog that is updated each week. John Seacrest, we certainly do appreciate your expertise on the subject, and we hope you'll come back and see us again here on U.S. Law Radio. I would be happy to, Dan. Thank you very much. Well, that's going to do it, folks. We're out of time. U.S. Law Radio is produced by Roger Yaffe. Send your comments and show ideas Roger's way because he loves to hear from you. This edition of U.S. Law Radio has been brought to you by SCA Limited, forensic engineering and origin cause experts working nationwide since 1970, and by Ringler Associates. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided injured parties and their attorneys with the finest structured settlement services. This is Dan Walker. Thanks for listening in, folks. We'll see you again next time for another new edition of U.S. Law Radio.